0: Welcome to the Boneyard with Steve Robertson. As always, I am your good friend and host, Steve Robertson, here on a triumphant Monday edition of The Yard. It is uh, in the wee hours of Monday morning. Haven't been to bed yet. Still pretty fired up about what happened at Dirty Noble Field on Sunday. Had a lot of phone calls, a lot of texts. Enjoyed reading some social media. Enjoyed reading message boards. Enjoyed the taste of Rebel Tears. Rebel Tears. Again, it never gets old, does it? It never, ever, ever, ever gets old. I mean, I to admit, before we even get started today, I think one of the most important things is to thank all the Bulldog fans that turned out this weekend, 34,000 plus over the weekend, second largest weekend we've ever had at Duty Noble Field. I guess it goes back to 2014, also Super Bulldog weekend. We had old Miss in town, I believe that's correct a phenomenal weekend and you guys created an incredible home field advantage and in that friday night game i really believe uh, as, I, as i wrote on gene's page that rowdy jordan got credit for the uh, the big hit there but it was really you guys you guys made it happen we get those maroon and white cheers going and you got some uh, inexperienced guys out there on the hill for old miss the moment was too big for them and your guys responded we're going to break down the weekend. We're going to talk a little spring football. We're going to talk a little bit about Jaden Wally. We're going to talk a little bit about a little bit of everything. We're going to, but it's a lot of baseball. It's a lot of baseball. But one of the things, too, I wanted to kind of get established today, in addition to uh, thanking you guys for creating an incredible home field advantage for the Diamond Dogs, is there is something else within our fan base that needs to be addressed. Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but we are a top five team around the country. And we have been throughout the season. I guess we were preseason top ten, and we have been in the top five pretty much ever since uh, we got back from Arlington with the exception of maybe one week after we get swapped from Arkansas, which is a bit of a wake-up call for us. And to this day, I think we can all pretty much be agreed to Arkansas is the best team in the country. Some could make an argument for Vanderbilt, but Arkansas has played better as of late. That's the team that got us. We'll get a chance to try on Vanderbilt for size here next weekend, and I'll be there. Can't wait to be there. I'd leave right now if I could, but I'd I'd miss that UAB ball game on Tuesday night at 630. But, guys, we have got to start embracing expectations. And if our team is playing as a top-five team, we need our fan base to perform like a top five fan base. Now, we talk all the time about the greatest fans in college baseball, and, you listen, nobody turns out to watch baseball like we do. There are a lot of people out there that have got some passionate fan bases. I put ours right up there at the top. Us, OSU, Ole Miss to a certain extent, or Arkansas. Read some things over the Ole Miss message board that uh, a lot of their fans at Ole Miss go to uh, ball games to be entertained. Our fans go to Duty Noble Field to be part of the game. We go over there to give our team a home field advantage. So not really speaking to those folks. Who I am speaking to now are these folks that uh, get on social media in the second inning of a ball game, and maybe we're now one, nothing, and they've already given up on the team. Listen, rest your insecurities somewhere else. because the Diamond Dogs don't need them. They also don't deserve them. So let's get excited about our team. You know, we had all this discussion over the weekend, you know, with lineup ought to be this, lineup ought to be that. And just about every time that we kind of do what the consensus fan poll is, we end up getting a loss or we end up something bad happening. And so let me just encourage you, let's be positive. As long as there is something to be positive about, there's no need to be negative. If we're winning, why do we have to pick it apart? Why do we have to make excuses for winning? Why do we have to say, well, you know, we play this team. Listen, we've already played the number one team in the country. We just took two out of three from the number six team in the country. They'll probably tumble out of the top ten this week. And so many of us, and I count that us as uh, Mississippi State folks because I am one of yours, many of us are scared of Ole Miss. I am not scared of Ole Miss, and I think I've proven that to you. Guys, listen, Ole Miss is not good at sports. They're probably better at baseball than they are at anything. And we're better than them at that. We are better at baseball than they are at anything, at least sports-related. I mean, you want to talk about you know combing bad bangs and buying cheap bourbon and putting on some bad cologne and, and wearing you know a sweater vest and that sort of stuff. I mean, they, they kick our butt and they're a bit of that. But as far as things where there is a scoreboard involved, they struggle. So I don't quite understand this fear of Ole Miss. Now, would there have been any shame in losing Ole Miss this weekend? You know, it wouldn't because they're a good team. But we're better. And I think we'd get up and go to work on Monday morning. I think we can feel like, you know what, hey, I can poke my chest out a little bit because not only were we better Sunday, not only were we better this weekend, not only have we been better the last five years, six years, 50 years, 100 years, we're simply better. There have been some times, you know, they've made some runs. And there was some time in the early 2000s, and I'm going to say some things that might hurt some feelings, but I'm going to say them anyway. Now, I love Coach Ron Polk. I do. Had a chance to visit with him recently over at Auburn. I see him just about every ball game. I love Ron Polk. I do. But things changed in the early 2000s. Dan McDonald and Mike Bianco got to Ole Miss, they kind of changed the way recruiting went as far as college baseball in the state of Mississippi. In many respects, we kind of depended on the fact that we had been the dominant program forever and a day, and we took a little bit for granted. And so the recruiting game kind of passed us by a little bit. Now, I don't say that necessarily to be critical of Coach Polk, because so I don't want you guys to suggest that. But the truth of the matter is, is they were much more aggressive much earlier in the process. And, you know, in years past, I mean, even if a guy was committed to Ole Miss, we knew they'd come to camp at Mississippi State. But, you know, Dan McDonald, who was the the big game hunter for Ole Miss baseball, he kind of convinced those guys, hey, why do you want to go up there? You can come here here and help turn this thing around. But we knew at Mississippi State, it's like, you know what, the best players in Mississippi want to play here. But the problem was is we didn't make them feel like a priority. And so you know what happened? They didn't come to camp. They never got around to working for us. It's like, you know what, hey, I'll just go over here to Ole Miss. These guys seem to really want me. So I'll just go over there. And they did. You know, Brian Petway, Stephen Head, those guys went over there and put together a great run at Ole Miss. And so they had the better of it a while in their early 2000s, you know, mid-2000s, in 2007 in the middle of their glory years. We went to Omaha, they didn't. And so I said then to many of my friends, when we hired John Cohen to be our head baseball coach, I said Oh Miss' little window is closing in college baseball. Because not only were we going to bring a guy that brought a modern approach to the game, but a modern approach to recruiting. I don't know if you guys know this. When John took over at Mississippi State, we didn't have a single player committed that year. Not one. Not one. Not a single guy committed towards the next recruiting class and so we're kind of having to cobble things together there at the end to put a class together and you know we didn't have the best of times 2015 i guess is that, is that right 2015 let me let me double check this i want to make sure our numbers are right here yeah 15 is the year we kind of had to rebuild and a lot of that's because we had not really reestablished some great recruiting pipelines you know, Cohen gets here, I guess, in uh, 08. And we kind of got, you know, start putting this thing together. And what do we do? We end up going out you know, here in a couple of years there, and we get Wes Ray, and we get Adam Frazier, and we get some other guys, and we put a, put a team together, and we made a run to, towards a national championship. Got Chris Stratton. Kind of got him late, too. You know, Chris is a bit of a late bloomer. Became a big leaguer. And so we went through a stretch there where things were not normal in the state of Mississippi. Now, we've won five series in a row from Ole Miss. have won 16 of the last 19. You can say, man, Steve, that's dominant. You know, let me, let me take you back a few years. You know, back in the, in the early mid-'90s, we dominated them even more. I just happened to have my trusty Mississippi State media guy in front of me. In 87, we swept the series. Uh, we get into 88, we go to Oxford, we win two out of three. We didn't play the full series in 89, which is weird to think about, but we didn't. We, we had them play them the, the very first game of the year and played them at home, and we lost. And then uh, the other games got rained out. Well, then we get into 1990, and so we win the series in 90 in Oxford. We turn around in 91, we only played one game because, again, we had some rainouts. We won the one game we did play, uh, the SEC weekend. We get in 1992, we sweep them in 92. We get in 1993, and, and, and again, th- these, these teams weren't necessarily dominant. These Mississippi State teams weren't. But in 93, we win the series again at Oxford. We turn around in 94, we get them at our place, we take two of three, one of those a 17-8 ball game. 1995, we win that series two in Oxford, two out of three. One of those crazy deals. And that's, of of those years, and listen, th- those were not great years. You, you kind of get the end of the uh, the Jay Gibbs era there. But uh, they go to the region 195, and that was really the best team. A lot of their teams around 500 back in those days. And so, you know, from basically the late 80s, through the mid-90s, Ole Miss rarely beat us. And so I say that because I think it's important. You know, we expected to win those games because they weren't great Ole Miss teams, and we were great for the most part. We had some years we were just really good, but, you know, but, but beating Ole Miss was an annual rite of passage. These Ole Miss teams are beaten now. These are really good baseball teams. They've been to the regionals, what, four of the last five years? You begin to kind of break this thing down. They had the one year they didn't make the tournament. They've been to Supers a couple times. So this is one of the great runs in Ole Miss baseball, and they can't beat Mississippi State. They can't beat Mississippi State. Three and 16 against the Bulldogs, dating back to 2016. And here's the thing, too. The names change. The results don't. Your head baseball coach in 2016 was John Cohen. Your head baseball coach in 2017 was Andy Cannizzaro. Your head baseball coach in 18 was Gary Henderson. Your head baseball coach 2019, Chris Lamonis. So, four different coaches have dominated Ole Miss during this stretch. And again, these are really good Ole Miss baseball teams. Give them credit. This wasn't like the 80s when Clark and Palmeiras and one took bad practice. You know, we were trying to beat OSU back then. We're still trying to beat OSU. And we have beaten OSU. But this weekend was kind of a microcosm of what we've had. And what's interesting, too, people say, you know, Steve, I really wanted to sweep. You know, I always want to sweep. It doesn't matter who we play. But, you know, the last three series between State and Ole Miss have been played at the Starkville, we've won best two out of three. The last two in Oxford we swept. And, of course, we won all four of the Mayor's Trophy games. So we are dominating – a really good program right now. And you know that has to really, really, really sting. You know, because they had convinced themselves, you know, in the mid-2000s that they had surpassed us in baseball. They go out and build their new stadium, and they got Bianco, and they survived a couple of overtures from LSU. You know, like, hey, we're now the dominant program in the state of Mississippi. Listen, there were some times I think we had to be honest with ourselves and say, you know what? These guys may have passed us. Our stadium had gotten a little bit antiquated. Our approach to recruiting was certainly antiquated. And then we're out here kind of making some things happen, hoping for the best. You know, Bulldog baseball is back. We're back to where we were. And it's like when you guys, you younger guys listen to the show, you younger guys and gals, and I I had a couple of young ladies correct me this weekend. So, you know what, Steve, we listen to the show too. And you know what, ladies, and I love you for it. But this is what it was like, you know, growing up in the 80s. In the you know, mid to late 80s, this is what it was. I mean, you know, we, hey, we went out there and we contended. We played well. We competed for championships. And, you know, we're in the mix to win the SEC. We're in the mix to, uh, you know, we didn't have super regionals back then. We were in the mix to go to Omaha. This is what it was like. Except we didn't have this grand cathedral of a stadium. And I don't know that we had the, as good a lineup from top to bottom. Yeah, you know, and that's the thing. I wrote an article here recently about there are no perfect teams. You go by I interviewed Ron Polk and John Cole both. You go back and look at the 85 team. Yeah, you know, bottom third of the order wasn't very good because we traded defense for offense. You know, Frank Davis and John Scott are guys that can play really good defense, run the bases pretty well, but they weren't great hitters. We also threw Jeff Brantley and Gene Morgan I mean, ridiculous amount of innings. Probably couldn't get away with that today. So we didn't have a lot of depth in the pitching staff, but yet there we were, best team in the country, and, you know, took some bad luck for us to get eliminated. Should have won an AFL championship. We were the best team in the country, but you know what? That final weekend, we weren't. 1989 team, offensively, one of the best teams in school history. But you know what? We didn't have a great pitching staff. Now, that may hurt a few feelings, but we didn't. We had a good pitching staff. You know, we had Bobby Reed, and he's a guy, too, that threw way too many innings. We had Tracy Jobs. He was the guy who was very competitive. Get out there and do some things for you. Chris George, Chuck Holley. You know, we had some good pitchers. But a lot of those guys, you know, we didn't – we kind of outscored people too. We overwhelmed people. You get in in 2013, team that played for a national championship against UCLA. We didn't have great starting pitching. We brought our bullpen. We'd go out there and throw, throw Trevor Fitz for, uh, you know, to get us through the first time through the order as a, as a right-hander, and they'd, they'd stack their lineup with lefties, and we'd bring Ross Mitchell in. I think Ross Mitchell went 11-0 that year, was an All-American. Sometimes I don't know if he could throw it through a wet, wet paper bag, but he did, and we won. And, you know, and Hunter Renfro didn't really become a star until that final year. He was the guy that struggled to hit the breaking ball. 2016, one of our greatest teams – Did I make it to Omaha. A lot of big leaguers on that team. Nate Lowe, of course, Jack Kruger. Ryan Gridley was a great player. Brent Rooker, of course, a redshirt sophomore back then. Dakota Hudson, Austin Sexton. It's a great team. We got upset in the Supers by Arizona. and Then they lost in a National Championship Series to Coastal Carolina. The fact that the Chanticleers have a national title and we don't is one of those things that really irritates me. So when I look at this team today, I say, you know what, we got some holes. But you know what, every team has had some holes. What happens is the best teams have to get hot and be playing their best baseball at the end of the year. We're playing really well right now. And I think we're a team that kind of believes that we've got that special feel to us. Maybe we have it, whatever it is. And one of the things that kind of comprises it is the fact that we believe we can always find a way to win. And we do. More times than not. So I say that to say this. If our team believes in themselves, and if our players and coaches believe in our program, can we our, our fans do it too? And I'm not talking to those of you that come out and do a great job, but there's a lot of people that are very outspoken about our baseball program that, uh, you know, they kind of let their emotions get the better of them. So let's kind of redirect that energy Towards getting behind this team and saying, you know, we got a chance to go to Omaha three straight times. We've never done that in school history. We've never done it in school history. We've been, been twice, back-to-back, couple, two times in our history. Brooks Bryan and Brian Weiss and Jeremy Jackson, those boys, they took us in 97, 98. Jake took us in 18 and 19. Of course, Ethan Small, big group, Hunter Stovall, Peyton Plumley, But we've never done it three times in a row. They didn't have the College World Series last year, so that, you know, that didn't count against us. We got a chance to go do something really cool. And so let's enjoy the season. Let's enjoy the ride together. You know, there were a lot of people last week, too, that were all upset and all up in arms because they thought they knew more when it came to how the ticketing situation was going to work. No, Steve, we're not going to do it. Yeah, well, yeah they did. I told you they would, and they did. Right over thirteen thousand at the game on Saturday. We had ten thousand, what, five twenty-two on Sunday. Over thirty-four thousand for the weekend. And so, rather than let's find things to gripe about, let's find things to feel good about. And I listen. I'm no Pollyanna, and people that know me that know me well will tell you. You know, there are sometimes too. I get a little down in the mouth too. But I'm enjoying this college baseball season, and I'm enjoying this team, and I'm enjoying having to get up every Monday morning, wondering where we're going to be in the polls. I get up every evening on Sundays, and I do a little scoreboard watch, and I go say, hey, well, we need this team to lose a game. We need this team to take a game. We need to split here. We need to sweep there. You keep up with all of it because I'm enjoying college baseball. So let's not ruin this because who knows where this thing's going to end. It might end in Omaha. It might end in a national championship. And that's the thing about this weekend that is so magical. It's like we've talked about, you know, after the Arkansas series you know it's like for all of the reason we all get so negative myself included is it's a reminder to us that maybe this isn't a year because every year we wake up and we tell ourselves you know maybe this is the year maybe this is it we get our first national championship and then our arkansas comes in here and sweeps us and we had a chance to go to number one that weekend and we didn't and all of a sudden we think you know what this ain't the year it ain't it Well, then all of a sudden we kind of turn some things around. You can put a couple of sweeps together yourself. You climb back into the race. you got Ole Miss coming in here, so it's a real test for your team. You say, you know what, is this the year? Well, if we lose this series to Ole Miss, it's probably not going to be the year. It might put us in a situation that we're not in contention for a top eight national seed, which means we'd be on the road in the Supers, assuming we advance. And then we get reminded, you know what, it might be the year. This is a good Ole Miss team. It is. We're going to break it all down. But that's what this weekend did. It kind of restored our belief into thinking, you know what, this just might be the year. All right, Bulldog Burger Company was hopping this weekend. Had a couple friends, went by and, and uh, had a great meal, had a great time, great service, great food. And they, got, they turned those tables over pretty quick this weekend, is what I was told. So, yeah, they didn't rush you on out of there, but uh, they didn't make you wait forever either. They kind of got things going. Bulldog Burger Company, great people, great food, great prices. You need to go by and find your own favorites. Go have that grilled chicken club. I had, it's, what's so weird is I had somebody come up to me at the ballgame and say, Steve, I went and had that grilled chicken club, and you're right. It's fantastic. A lot to talk about, and that's what they wanted to talk about, a grilled chicken club sandwich from Bulldog Burger Company. They also had the spring rolls. And as you can imagine, they were much better looking than their driver's license photo. Go do yourself the same service. Go to Bulldog Burger Company today. Two locations to serve you right here on University Drive in Stark, Vegas and on Gloucester Street there in Tupelo. And coming soon to Ridgewood, Mississippi. Bulldog Burger Company, the place where people go to meet. M-E-A-T. I don't know if I've told you guys before, I love talking college baseball with you guys. I do. I love college baseball. I love college football. I do. I love everything about it. But I love college baseball maybe a little bit more than everything else. Because, and maybe it's because we've been so good at it. Maybe I'm biased towards baseball because I feel like we're going to win an Apple championship uh, here sooner rather than later in baseball. So let's take a quick look at Friday's game. Believe it or not, that game got over in two hours and 39 minutes. 10,291 people attended the ball game. And some people swear there was more there. So McLeod, and we, we wondered, okay, listen – what kind of effort are we going to get from Christian? Well, we got a great effort from Christian, despite the fact he didn't have his best stuff. I really believe this might have been his gutsiest effort of his career at Mississippi State. Had trouble landing the breaking balls, so he couldn't keep people off the fastball. But he hung in there and he gave us five innings. We got off to a really good start, though. Really got off to a good start. So we get a 1-2-3 inning including a punch out to end it did get down in some counts there had a couple counts run full but christian gets a one two three inning in the first and we go out and put a run up and thinking okay we're rolling here your know, rowdy strikes out but then ta who had a huge weekend doubles in the center field the very first pitch that he sees and it's all hustle and when you and there, he did so many great things the weekend you almost forget about it but you know, he doubles the ball into right center field, and uh, John Rice Plumley's out there, and he's loafing on the play a little bit. T.A. takes advantage, goes into second. Cam James then um, drives in a run. It's a single. In the left. And we, we scored that run because T.A.'s already at second, because he's hustled in there. And then Luke uh, flies out and uh, Logan Tanner Kays. Uh, Luke had a really rough weekend, but you know what? I'm not worried about that because Luke is a bona fide killer. He'll get it going. This is a guy, he's probably in the cage right now as you're listening to this. All right, then McLeod goes right back out there and gets a 1-2-3 inning. So we're thinking, okay, we're good. We're good here. We're good. A much more efficient inning, too. Only had one count that ran a 2-2. Two, two. Everything else is really, really quick. Bottom of second, we go 1-2-3. And listen, I give, I give Gunnar Hoggan a lot of credit. That guy's really, really good. Really, really, really good. You can see why he was drafted so high in high school. The guy can really pitch, man. All right, so we get into the the top of three, and Ole Miss ties the ball game up, and it's so crazy how this thing happens. It all kind of comes together for them with two outs. So we get a ground out to open, and then Cal Baker, who had an awful weekend for Ole Miss, He's a marginal guy. I mean, I, I, mean I, be, I know his numbers were big last year, and I don't know what's changed with him, but uh, he is a marginal guy. He's probably put on too much weight. That, that's kind of their strength and conditioning programs. They just get those guys to eat a whole bunch. There's a difference between good weight and bad weight. Ole Miss has got some guys with a lot of bad weight, and uh, Cal Baker's one of them. And so then you get Plumly looking. So now you've got a runner at first with two outs and top of the order coming up, and so okay, let's get out of this thing. And I give Gonzalez a lot of credit. I really like Gonzalez from Ole Miss at, at, at shortstop. He is, Listen, he's a young guy, made a couple mistakes on the weekend, but you can tell this kid understands how to play the game. He's going to be a star. I mean, he really is. Well, he works and extends the inning. You know, he gets down one-two in the count, and the next thing you know, we've walked him. And so, now all of a sudden, there's runners at first and second. We're starting to get a little antsy here, and then um, – you know, Chatagnier singles through and uh, Baker scores. because yeah, we made a little bit of a mistake there. But, um, you know, the bottom line is it's a it, it's two-out it's two rally and we kind of, you know, we're part of this. You know, we contribute to our own demise here. And that was a lot of what they did. Two-out runs. I give Ole Miss some credit. They've got a little clutch about them. And we end up walking Graham and finally get out of their Dunhouse, Dunhouse swinging. And that was, I'll tell you, that pitch that we threw there, that Christian McLeod threw, guys, he he basically spiked the breaking ball on a full count and got Dunhurst to swing over the top of it. A lot of people are thinking, well, you know, you got to throw a fastball in there, bases are loaded. and uh, But Christian didn't. Christian trusted his catcher and says, you know what, I know this guy has a propensity to swing and miss on a breaking ball. I'm going to throw the breaking ball. And he did. And it was a great breaking ball, but it was not a strike. It takes a lot of stones to throw that pitch. All right, so then we go 1-2-3 in the third. It's a 1-1 ball game. We get into the fourth. Ole Miss takes the lead here. We get bench to K, and then McCants hits one up into the plaza there. And I give the kid a lot of credit. It's an 0-1-1 count, and it's, it's a situation where the bat kind of found the ball, but he turned on it. I like McCants. I really do. I know some Ole Miss people have kind of complained about him. He doesn't have a big arm. He doesn't run especially well. Got a long swing, but I tell you, that kid's going to be a good player. Then Van Cleve grounds out and uh, Cal Baker lines out to short. It's a 2-1 ball game. And, it, and the Natives were a little bit restless, you know, because it was like, you know what, we can't we can't get farther down in this ball game because Hogwin is so good he's not going to give us much. So we all know this kind of going in. So you get down 2-1, you're kind of worried – And then Cam James gets a 1-0 fastball about belt high, and he knocks about 25 rows deep into the left field lounge. And yes, I know they're not rows out there. I'm just trying to uh, to illustrate that as best I can. It was an absolute tank job. They get us out of the inning behind that. We actually had some loud outs that inning, but now it's a 2-2 ball game, and you kind of felt like, you know what, we've answered. They hit the home run. We hit one of our own, and we answer. And then McLeod goes back out there and gets a 1-2-3 inning. Well, I said it's not a 1-2-3 inning. He gets a ground out, gives up a single. Then we have the strikeout throw out there. And it would have been hitter interference there. Logan Tanner didn't need it, made an incredible throw to get him. Gonzalez pops up and signals safe, and he was out by 10 feet. So bottom of five, we get up there, and we go 1-2-3 ourselves. And so now we've pulled McLeod in lieu of Preston Johnson. Now, Christian McLeod, as I mentioned, did not have overpowering stuff. But he was able to get through five and kind of get it to Johnson to give us an opportunity. And if you begin to think, okay, if Johnson's pitching well and if we find a way to rally and take a lead, you bring in Landon Sims, that's exactly what happened. And Preston Johnson, uh, his outing against Auburn was not good. He walked the first two hitters he saw – and uh, both of those guys came around to score, was part of that rally, allowed them to, to kind of tighten that game up on Friday. But he comes in, starts mowing people down, strikeout looking, gives up a single, and then gets a double play to get out of it. I'm sure that settled the kid down a lot. Bottom six, we, blow, we just absolutely had a chance here to kind of do some big things. We didn't. Uh, Rowdy flies out, but we do get T.A. to triple. I think it was his first of three triples on the weekend. And then Cam James flies out, and it's a sack fly. Now, all of a sudden, we have a 3-2 lead. And then Luke flies out. So, it's a 3-2 ball game, and it's starting to get late. So, Ole Miss, I can't say they were desperate at this point, but I think Preston Johnson was filling up his own, and they weren't quite sure how to handle it. Preston Johnson's a big, imposing guy. I'm a Preston Johnson fan. He shouldn't have figured this out. So we get a case swinging, and then we, we make an error, allow the guy to get on base, and then we get a case swinging, and then we get a case swinging. So Preston Johnson finishes his night two scoreless innings, gives up uh, the one hit there, and really stayed on the ball when he did have a little adversity and was able to get some punch outs. If that guy can go out there and get us a couple innings in relief of McLeod, get us two to three innings, and get that thing to Landon Sims, we're going to win a lot of games on Friday night. Bottom of seven, we come up, we have a chance to build the lead. We don't. We go out. It's crazy. K looking, K swinging, and then we line out there. It's a 3-2 ball game. We get into the eighth. We bring in Landon Sims. And many of you are thinking, okay, the ball game is over. And it was, for all intents and purposes. We get Gonzalez swinging, Chatagnier swinging, and then Graham to line out. Hold Miss down to their final three outs. But we add some important insurance. I turned to Tyler Horka. I said, you know, I, they're fixing to get an insurance run. You can just kind of feel it in the air. They bring in uh, the Diamond Kid, who was their former Sunday starter. Hogan again, was great. He really was. But he left down a run. As great as he was, he left with a deficiency. He left with a deficit. So Forsyth grounds out, and Scotty De Brule rips a double down left field lines. Huge, huge hit there. Rowdy singles drives in De Brule and then TA comes in and singles and there's runners on the corners, and then Cam James again with a sack fly. It's a five-two ball game. At that point, with Landon Sims on the dish, on, on the on the rubber, excuse me, it's over. And it was. He gives up a leadoff double. Then we get the double play, and uh, I still don't understand where the runner was going there. First thing I tell you, Little League Baseball, freeze on line drive, but he was running. And then we get McCann swinging. is over 5 2. Now, a lot of us felt like going on the weekend, you know, we got three games to play with. We just need to win this series. So you went on Friday, and you're able to relax a little bit. So, you know what? We got two chances to win one at the very least. And we get into Saturday. It was an absolute joke. But before we do, let me run down some numbers for you from Friday just in case you forgot and look at this box score real quick. Preston Johnson earns his first college win. Lennon Sims picks up his four save. Gunnar Hoglund picks up his second loss. That kicking can really pitch, though. I admit it, that guy's really good. TA, three for four. Cam James, two for two with four RBIs. Scotty Debrule with a couple of big... Uh, Couple big at bats there. Gets the the hit and the late run there. We have uh, five runs on seven hits. Not a great offensive night, but when you're, when you're getting a future big leaguer on the hill going against you, you're gonna have some nights like that. So, speaking of uh, great pitching performances, that's what happened on Saturday. Mississippi State. You know, we just, we just never seemed to get going. And listen, Ole Miss scored in the first five innings. I mean, we didn't we didn't keep them off the hill until the off the scoreboard until the six. They scored and six of the nine innings and had 17 hits. We had one. I'm not going to just run this thing down for you just because we've all been over it enough. But we didn't get any base runners. And we did do a good job uh, getting Cam Toller some work. Mikey Tepper got some SEC play. Eric Toller gets out there, does some things. But listen, everything was working for Ole Miss. And listen, give them some credit for getting back off the mat and responding. That was a tough loss on Friday night. And they came back and whipped our fannies on Saturday. They did. You know, you tip your cap and say, you know what? This guy, Doug McKay, he may be your SEC Pitcher of the Week. He goes a one-hit complete game, shutout, strikes out 12, issued two walks, 122 pitches. We just didn't—we just couldn't do anything with him. And listen, when you can throw the breaking ball to both sides of the plate and you can change speeds, he's not overpowering with that fastball. But he is really good with the change and good with the breaking ball, and it keeps people off the fastball, and you're up there guessing a lot. And so, he hurt us. He did. So, congratulations, Doug, you got us. You went home with a series loss, but I'm sure you can feel good. And probably and Again, probably get the SEC Pitcher of the Week award. But, uh, but on Sunday, your boys couldn't finish the deal for you. So, let's get into Sunday think we all felt pretty good about where things stood going in but listen we all wake up probably thinking man the thought of losing these guys is more than i can bear and we have all spoke so glowingly of the 14 and 2 record over the last four years we have we don't want to give that up man right now we can say 16 of 19 so we're 16 and 3 against them in the last five years and so we love being able to say that we don't want to surrender that talking point right so let's kind of break this thing down. And again, uh, you know, state gets to him early. We had a chance. I thought I turned to Tyler Horkel when I was watching uh, McDaniel's pitch there in pregame. You know, he had some horrendous misses, even in pregame warmups. I mean, they were awful. And then that kind of carried over. You know, it really did. We get it. We get out of the. We get out of the inning pretty quick as far as the top goes. We get we walk Gonzalez, but then the grounds in double play. Taylor made there six four three. We get out of it, and then Graham pops up, and you think, okay, Fristo's good to go. So we get into the first ourselves, and I thought we really blew an opportunity here. I didn't think he was sharp at all. Rowdy gets the big uh, hit to the left side, and then he hits Allen on the very first pitch that he sees, and so you get runners at first and second, nobody out. And to be honest with you, even though Cam James has been raking, I would have bunted right here because the way that Luke Hancock elevates the ball, if I get runners to second, third, I'm going to get the sack fly. But we didn't do it. We strike out looking. And listen, the strike zone was kind of erratic on Sunday for both teams. I'm not trying to sit here and say that Mississippi State got shortchanged. But it really felt like both teams were getting squeezed a little bit, so you kind of had to throw it up there and get hit. So Luke Hancock flies out, and then Tanner flies out. We don't get anything from it. Just one of those things, you get your first two guys on and you don't even move them around. Just one, I mean, just one, again, it's an early situation. You'd like to be able to get the big hit. But I I like to play for one early. I really do. So, we come back in the second inning. And, again, it seems like we've got some things going for us here. We get uh, ground out to Hatcher at first there, and Josh played a really good ball game. Bench then doubles to left center. Rowdy comes up firing. It's gonna be close. He looked safe initially because I thought the bro missed the tag until I saw the replay and saw that he got him. And then they went and reviewed it and didn't change the call. I still don't understand it, but whatever. The the run the runner that was gifted to Ole Miss was stranded because uh Fristo battles back and strikes out back to back hitters to get out of it, including Leatherwood. Bottom second, we couldn't push much across there. We get a leadoff walk. Again, Hatcher, great job of being disciplined there. Because, listen, here's the deal with Josh. 2-0 counts, he's usually swinging. He got a ball in, he takes it, and then he gets the ball up and he's on base. And all of a sudden, we've got a leadoff uh, runner on, and then they, they pop up on the infield. There's nothing Josh can do. You, you, know, you don't go halfway on a pop-up on the infield. But Braylon ends up at first and then still second. And then Forsyth singles to the right side, and Skinner scores. And so we get there. It kind of serves the same purpose as a bunt, but we get there because of Skinner's ability to steal the base. And he breaks on it, and then the ball's in the dirt, so so Dunhurst really had no chance. But just, you know, way to be aggressive. And so then DeBruyre pops up, and I thought that was going to drop too, and Rowdy strikes out swinging. But it's a one nothing ball game, and I think everybody in the ballpark kind of relaxed just a little bit. Said, okay, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. Ole comes right back and ties it. And, again, it's one of those deals. It's a two-out rally that's kind of self-inflicted. We get Baker to K. We get Harris to fly out. And so there's O2, and then Gonzalez has one of the best at-bats of the day, gets down 0-2, and then works it for a walk. Fouls the ball off, fouls the ball off, fouls the ball off, and the next thing you know, he walks. And then Chatagnier singles through the left side on the very first pitch, runners at first and second. Graham walks, and we end up walking Dunhurst to walk a run in. So we tie the game ourselves. And, again, it's a two-out rally based on some self-inflicted errors. You know, we go up there. Let's just say we get Gonzalez to pop up. We get that thing one, two, three. It might be a different story today. Bottom of three state goes one, two, three. We don't do anything about it. Top of four. Ole Miss gets the lead. McCants goes out swinging. And uh, this is this is when we had Hootie in the game, too. You know, we brought Houston Harding in uh, late in the third. You know, he got Justin Bench to fly out. But uh, Hootie's in the ballgame and we get a full count and you know harding likes to throw that change up on fastball counts you know because you know guys are going to be untying their shoes trying to hit the fastball and so he loves throwing that change up and getting a swing and miss well leatherwood was clearly sitting back sitting change and he hammered that ball in the right field bleachers put them up two one and then we, we go right back to it we get it handled we get baker swinging and then um we get Van Cleve to ground out short on a 2 count. So, damage done, but it's not too much to overcome. But we go 1-2-3 the next inning, and it felt like your boy McDaniels pitching pretty well. But Hootie's bearing down, too. You get a 1-2-3 inning out of Ole Miss there, and we get in the bottom of five, and we tie the game up. Forsyth flies out, DeBruyne strikes out, and all of a sudden, we get a two-out run. Rowdy Jordan hits a majestic blast to right i mean that thing was probably 50 60 feet high off the bat i mean an absolute tank it's a tie ball game and then they walk tanner out and he think okay we're just gonna blow this guy up but we they get out of it with a fly out from uh, cam so it's a 2-2 ball game houston harding now it's his game to win or lose he comes back and gets Dernhurst swinging, really made him look silly with some of those change Bench grounds out to third, nice play by Cam, and then we walk McCants, and then we get back to Leatherwood. And I, I really disagreed with the, the pitch sequence here. You know, in hindsight, it's always twenty twenty. I would not have given him another change-up to hit. I just wouldn't. And I thought Harding was throwing harder than he has all year. He was hit 90 on the gun. He's routinely an 88-89 guy. He got 90 today, maybe even got 91 once. And that makes that change up even more devastating. But we get a full count here, and he's sure enough, you know, pardon me. I'm ahead of myself. It's an 0-1. We get ahead head 0-1, and we do a change. We go back to it, and he hits another bomb. And a great weekend for Leatherwood. He's probably going to be the everyday right fielder for them. Then we get Baker to strike out looking. So now it's a 4-2 Ole Miss lead, middle of the sixth. And there were a lot of people that said, you know what, we're in a lot of trouble here. We're in a lot of trouble. They bring in mallets for McDaniel once there's one out. And it's, there's, a, there's a little bit of uh, angst in the Ole Miss fan base about bringing this kid in. And uh, at this point, I think, I think we were either going to get to McDaniel or we're going to get to whoever they tried it out there, unless maybe it was Broadway. Because Broadway's an excellent pitcher, too. We did get to him eventually. But they bring in mallets, and uh, we get three hits in a row. Tanner singles up the middle. Hatcher singles to the right side. Skinner singles to the right side. And it runs scores. Now it's a 4-3 ball game. Forsyth and K's looking. And the Brule singles through and drives in Hatcher. So it's a tie ball game. Rowdy then has the infield hit there. And uh, the bases are loading. They bring in Broadway to face T.A. Now, of course, this is their third pitcher of the inning. You go Mowitz, Miller, Broadway. And I put this in the notes in my article. You know, if you're Old Miss and you're in a bases loaded situation with two down and you bring in Broadway, you think, "You know what? I got my best reliever on the hill. This is the best situation that I can hope for. This is probably the game, it's a tie ball game. We got to get an out of here. We can't give up any more runs. So, who's the one guy I'm going to pick out of the bullpen? What's Broadway?" Well, the Mississippi State on the other side of this thing is like, "Okay, it's two outs. We've tied the game. You got bases loaded. Who's the one guy you want up there? Well, it's T.A. It's obviously T.A. I mean, that's not not a shot at anybody else on the team, but you know, if I'm, I'm making the call there, I'm picking T.A. because here's what I know: that guy's going to work hard and get me an A.B. He's willing to take a walk. He's willing to work the other way, and when he gets a fastball, he hammers it. And that's what happens in a situation here: two balls down, it's a two and zero count. You know, so he's not going to want to walk in to go-ahead run, so you know you're going to get a pitch to hit. Actually got a fastball down, which what shows what a great job Tanner Allen did of hitting here is he goes down and gets it and lifts that thing and lines it out into the right, right center field gap. I thought McCants took a bad angle. I don't know that it would have mattered as hard as that ball was hit. And everybody scores. And listen, if you've seen the replays, you know it. As soon as that ball hit green grass, T.A. was thinking three. And he made it easy. Now it's a 7-4 ball game. And you begin to think, you know what, if we can just find a way to get to Landon Sims, a lot of people are thinking, Steve, let's bring in Landon Sims right now in the seventh. Well, considering that he threw, what, about 20, 25 pitches on Friday, a three-inning save is probably not in the cards. So we bring in Parker Stinnett, And listen, Parker Stinnett is an Oxford native. And so I wondered a little bit about his juice level with this one, you know. Is he going to be a little too keyed up here? I think he might have been a little bit. Got behind a couple of hitters early. Uh, got down 2-0 and then gives up a, a double to, to Van Cleve. And the fact that Van Cleve can double will tell you how well that ball was hit. Gonzales then flies out, and then we hit chatton with the pitch. Now he runs at first and second. And, listen, we get a great play here. I mean, a great play by, by Josh Hatcher. Great play there, and uh, ranging deep behind the bag, gets it, and then throws to Parker Stinnett who covers. And great job of Parker to get over. You get the out there, runners take second third, no harm done yet. Then we walk Dunhurst on four pitches. But Stinnett kind of bears down. And listen, Logan Tanner did a good job going out there selling his pitcher down, and he gets a ground ball, and, and we get out of it. And so, at that point, it really felt like the ball game. And I mean, that's, that's how it felt in the stadium. It's like, you know what, we had to, they had to leave them loaded. The time runs on base in the seventh. Now they've got six outs to go, and you know who's down there warming up in the pen. We have a chance to get a little insurance we don't cash in. Hancock flies out, and I think he was 0 for 11 for the weekend. And then Tanner Tanner doubles to left, and a great at bat here. You know, he gets down 0-2, fouls one off, and then takes three straight balls, fouls off another, and then doubles in the left field. Josh Hatcher then grounds out to the first baseman, who throws to the pitcher to covers. Tanner takes third, and then Braywin Skinner, first pitch swinging. And he is aggressive on that first pitch. It was in a situation earlier in the ball game where you walk Hatcher on four pitches and then Skinner pops at the very first pitch you see. Sometimes you just got to have a little more patience to play. So we bring in um, Brandon in the 8th had Hadn't pitched in a while. And I thought Brandon, his, probably his best outing he had in a while, even though we didn't play it exceptionally well. We get a ground out from McCants. We get a strikeout from Leatherwoods. And there's two outs, nobody on uh cal baker singles and then van cleave gets on we you know it's just crazy we we get a ground ball and cam has played good defense all weekend we get a ground ball and i don't know why he hustled the way he did with van cleave getting over there i mean van cleave looks like he's running in molasses but um you know we drop it we hurry ourselves up we throw it away and then van cleave runs over hatcher i was okay with the no call because it's just two guys making a play. I mean, there was no deliberate intent on either party that I saw. But the run scores. Now, all of a sudden, it's 7-5. It's like a circus had come to town, and then Gonzalez grounds out a second. We get out of it. 7-5. 7-4 felt a whole lot better. We get into the eighth, and we get Forsythe to ground out. DeBruyld then singles again. Big hit again from Scottie De DeBruyld. Maybe he's getting it going. Then rowdy singles. We got runners at first and second. So, again, a chance – to get a little insurance we don't ta flies out cam grounds out and then uh white snake played at duty noble field and we bring in landon sims and how incredible was that he said himself he got chills coming in hearing ten thousand people cheering for him he's the guy man he's the guy we want on the hill late in the ball game graham flies out dunhurst gets on an offensive error on the shortstop we get a ground ball i guess pardon me we get we got uh Chatagnier swinging and then graham flies left with so two outs quickly and then dunhurst it's a, a routine ground ball to short we boot it so now the time runs at the plate but uh bench grounds out to the shortstop and we throw over there and the game's over and now it's a seven to five ball game and mississippi state's taking two of three from Ole Miss. Pretty, pretty exciting weekend and a series we had to have and a series that we played pretty well. But, you, listen, you tipped your cap at Doug Nikhazy, who was outstanding on Saturday. But the thing that I'm reminded of, too, is it took that. It took a near-career performance from him uh, to shut us out and keep us off the board. And, listen, after we had beaten them on Friday night, you knew they'd come back and respond. They did. And then we came back and counterpunched on Sunday and won the series. All right, let's take a quick look around the league. South Carolina takes two out of three from LSU and Baton Rouge. The LSU got off to a good start. They win that Thursday night game and beat South Carolina's ace. But, uh, you know, the Gamecocks come back and play really well and win a pair uh, to close out the series. Florida sweeps Missouri. Uh, we're not going to get any help from Mizzou. And thankfully we get them. They're, they're dreadful. We've got to find a way to make sure we win that one. Arkansas wins the first two but then lose 11 to 10 on Sunday so Aggies thank you very much we were hoping you guys could take a game from Arkansas to help us be within a game in the standings we didn't have a lot of faith in you doing it but you did so thank you Uh, Vanderbilt takes two out of three in Knoxville of course Tennessee gets the big Saturday win and again we hope Tennessee could at least get one maybe two Kumar Rocker dominated on Friday, but Tennessee did kind of get the Jack Light a little bit on Saturday. On Saturday, and so Vanderbilt wins the series, but uh, again, we just want to see splits around the league when we can get them. Uh, Auburn plays 3-1-1 ball games with Alabama. They lose 2 of the 3. It's just been that kind of year for Auburn. Alabama walks it off on uh, on Saturday. And then um, A&M in Arkansas, we talked about that one. You know, they had a doubleheader on Saturday, and then they win. But Kentucky-Georgia, Georgia takes two of three. Georgia's kind of figuring some things out. You know, they, they take the series from Vanderbilt. They come back and take the series from Kentucky. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, I think Nick is probably safe as far as getting a Hoover right now. But, um, you know, got to win some ball games. Let's take a quick look at the standings before we move on to a, a really cool top ten list. So the standings right now, Vanderbilt remains in first place, tied with Arkansas with an 11-4 and record. And right there, a game back, is Tennessee, South Carolina, Mississippi State. So five teams within a game at the top of the standings. Beneath that, Florida and Ole Miss right there at 9-6, and six, and then Kentucky, Georgia, Alabama all right there at 7-8. and eight. Then Mizzou, LSU, Texas A&M, and Auburn – 4-11, Auburn 2-13, and 13, excuse me. And so, as this thing kind of shapes up, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and go. On, I'll give you a hot take right now. LSU's making it to Hoover. They're going to make it to Hoover, and they're going to ruin somebody's season. I'm just telling you now. I just hope it's not us. Uh, they get Ole Miss this weekend. I hope they go over there. Ole Miss has lost three series in a row. You know what you're going to get with Marceau. You know, Nikhazy's going to have a, a, you know, a good outing you would expect, but that's uh, baseball. You never know. When a guy's going to maybe have a blister or whatever, or maybe his girlfriend hurt his feelings for the ball game, he did not pitch quite as well. It's a long year. A lot can happen. Even some of our own fans have left us buried for dead, but here we are at the halfway point, officially 15 games into the 30-game SEC schedule, and we're a game out of first place. Who would have thought that you know, that Monday after we get swept by Arkansas? But here we are. It is a long season. And once we get through Vanderbilt, the schedule really lightens up for us. You begin kind of working this thing through here. you got five series left. The most difficult one is the one this weekend going to Nashville. We can find a way to win a ball game up there, and, my goodness, we can win two. Life changes for us in a major way. Then we get A&M here. We go to South Carolina. We get Missouri here, and then we go to Alabama. So, good chance we can win all those series. That trip to South Carolina is certainly not going to be easy. But when you begin to think about what we're playing for, and that's the last weekend before they announce the NCAA regional hosting sites. We'll find out the Monday after we get back from South Carolina. So a lot left to play for. We knew we had to right the ship and get a couple of uh, series wins with Kentucky and Auburn. We get sweeps there. We knew we had to probably go 3-3 and against Ole Miss and Vandy. We've already got two of those knocked out, and so we feel pretty good about where we stand right now. Now it's just time to finish up. Today's top ten list brought to you by the fine folks at johnnypacker.com. I told you guys, too, that uh, my wife says that the sunglasses that johnnypacker.com provided to her, she got the Greenwood frames, most comfortable sunglasses she's ever had. Matter of fact, she wore them at a race today. We ran a uh, race on campus uh, for a young man, a scholarship, for a young man that pa- passed away unexpectedly back in 2019. And, and she wore the race, wore the sunglasses during the race, and uh, said that at no point did she ever think she was going to lose them. So you need to go to johnnypacker.com today. Check out your new summer glasses because here's the deal you need some new sunglasses anyway you're going to be out you're going to be at duty noble you're going to be going to the beach you're going to be doing some great things we're going to be out living life you need to look cool and you need to protect your eyes you can do both by going to johnnypacker.com and all the frames are named after mississippi towns maybe your town appeals to you maybe your town was picked but also too these are mississippi state guys that are doing a great job making a great product in addition to that a portion of every purchase goes to the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. So do something good for yourself and good for somebody else at the same time. Again, that's johnnypacker.com. So Nathan Long reached out to me on Twitter, and he said, he left a kind of a lengthy message. I'm going to share this with you a little bit, okay? Hey, Steve, first off, love the podcast and the work you do covering MSU. A big fan. I always listen to the podcast on my commute to MSU or while doing schoolwork. Super excited for you with all the things you've been able to accomplish. And I hope to have a chance to read some of your books uh, as well soon when college eases up. Being a state fanatic, I'd like to learn more about our history. I have an idea for top 10 list. Not sure if you've ever done anything like this. Maybe you have. But I just thought it'd be kind of cool to do a top 10 most important bands to set the course of rock music. You're speaking my language, Nathan. You're speaking my language. You're clearly a member of my tribe. Obviously, the Rolling Stones and Black Sabbath come to mind, but I'd be interested to hear your take, especially on the tail end of that list. Maybe you've already done something similar to this, and this doesn't exactly make for a good top ten list. I don't know, just a thought. I know I'm young. I was born in 99, my goodness. But the classic rock of the 80s and the 90s, to me, are far superior to today's stuff. I constantly find myself learning more about it, listening to more of it. Anyway, I appreciate you. Stay blessed. Okay, so Nathan, uh, we're going to dedicate the whole week to you. So we're going to talk about the history of rock music. We're going to do top 10 lists today on the 50s and 60s, and then we're going to do 70s and 80s on Wednesday, and then 90s and 2000s on Friday. And so these are not going to be numbered per se on importance. Some of this is kind of chronological, and there's some points that I want to make for some of this. So I want to run these down for you. And, and here's the thing, too, to kind of understand, Nathan, and for you, some of the, you older uh, students that maybe don't know a whole lot about, you know, maybe the infancy of rock music. Listen, it was, a lot of it was very bland before the 1950s. You had guys like Pat Boone that were basically crooners. Uh, there was not a lot of innovation in rock music at the time. There really wasn't rock music. Rock music is still a relatively young genre even though, you know, we're the, comp- we're the country that created rock. It's just one of those things that was kind of born out of necessity and out of R&B music. A lot of it goes back to the blues. Now, a lot of those guys were doing some things that were very innovative with the guitar, but there were a lot of people that kind of rejected some of that. There wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of uh, you know, work on the neck. There wasn't, there wasn't a lot of picking even. It was just kind of, just kind of strumming along as, a, as an instrument of accompanying it. But a guy named Chuck Berry came along and changed everything with the guitar. Chuck Berry, of course, uh, you know, an incredible guitar player. But he kind of took what was happening in the juke joints and the speakeasies of the world and brought it to the stage. And America really wasn't ready for it. But he hit the ground running completely changed everything. And then all of a sudden, because of the fact that he played with a distorted amp and, and he was picking a lot more than strumming and uh, doing some soloing type things, and you go back and listen to some of that stuff early on in his career, and you you hear of a lot of what we hear today, but that was a very innovative time in music. Chuck Berry, and I've, I've read and heard so many rock documentaries and, and uh, books over the years that people kind of reference is Chuck Berry is really the for the forerunner of rock music and you may not know this young man but Chuck Berry was an African-American and again a guy that uh, could play the blues but wanted to do something a little different wanted people to be able to dance a little bit more so in honor of Chuck Berry we're going to add the incomparable song Johnny Be Good" to today's top 10 list another African-American artist that was very very irreverent that really kind of caused a lot of controversy. It's little Richard. And little Richard was a guy that was you know trained in the church and uh you know was very flamboyant, but one of those guys too that brought the performance piece to music. I mean if you go back and look, even some of the R and B artists at the time really were not great performers. They were good singers and they could write good music, but the performance piece was really missing. And that's what Chuck and Little Richard kind of brought they brought a show it wasn't just something that happened in a studio locked away where everything was perfect and did a hundred takes and then they printed the best one on the 45 and put it in the mail Little Richard and then these guys because TV was really beginning to emerge and shows like American Brand, Bandstand and Merv Griffin show these things were beginning to happen and so now all of a sudden people wanted to get out there and be a little bit more outrageous and little Richard absolutely was and so in honor of him we're going to put Tutti Frutti on the list today another band that is maybe a little bit unheralded but they really benefited from TV it benefited from movies it's a band called Bill Haley and the Comets and they had a song called Rock Around the Clock that ended up being the theme song um, for just about everything for a while it was in movies um, it was also the original theme song for Happy Days. They ended up changing a little bit later, but uh, you know it was kind of synonymous with the show. And so all of a sudden, this was getting played regularly on the radio and then on TV and in movies. And it took forever. It was kind of a slow build, but uh, you know, Bill Haley in the comments, I mean, this was a song that was written in the early '50s, and then all of a sudden it was you know, it was played everywhere. It was it is an iconic song. And even if you put it on today, it just makes you want to move. It really does, even though it's kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's very antiquated, as you can imagine, you know, in its instrumentation. But uh, the spirit of the song is incredible. So Rock Around the Clock from Bill Haley, that makes our list. Uh, number seven, Elvis was really kind of making a move here, too. You know, Elvis originally was kind of a bit of a crooner as well. And then Elvis began to put more of his personality in his music and then things change you know people forget too people talk about how crazy society is today they wouldn't let elvis presley be filmed from the waist down because of his gyrating pelvis right because he moved he shook his hips and that kind of stuff and they didn't want that on tv afraid their tvs would explode and their kids would run away and whatever so in honor of elvis our mississippi boy we're going to go jailhouse rock today Number six, and an important guy on the list, and again, I'm not ranking these on importance, but uh, one of the guys that I think he had a, a, an abbreviated career due to a plane crash, but he was a guy that kind of pulled in another demographic in rock music, and it's Richie Valens. And if you've never seen the movie La Bamba, let me encourage you to do it. Uh, Lou Diamond Phillips is in there, and it's great. And we're gonna, and the song we're going to use is La Bamba. But he kind of took Teano music and then – Added an electric guitar to it, and all of a sudden, there was rock in the Latino community. And so while this started originally in the blues, juke joints and things of that nature, and eventually came to the airwaves out to kind of white America, Ricky Balance is the one that kind of pulled it in and, and, and made it, you know not just multiracial, but multinational, because Ritchie Valance was a huge hit out of Mexico. And so things began to change and innovate. You know, because, you know, music is a unifier. That's one of the things that I think gets lost in today's culture. It's like, you know, these are people playing the same instruments and playing a lot of the same chords and that sort of stuff. And, you know, we're in the middle of getting ready for the civil rights movement in America. But, you know, music back in those days was just simply fun. I mean, there wasn't a lot of protests just yet. And I think Richie Valance would have had an incredible career, you know, had he lived. You know, of course, he and the Big Bopper and Buddy Holly died in a plane crash. But uh, if you've never seen Bomba, let me encourage you to do so. He, Richie is a guy that you know, grew up in the, you know, in the ghetto, and uh, it was involved in an in interracial relationship with a white girl, and her family didn't approve. And uh, Donna was her name, and he wrote a hit song about her and, and uh, won her heart. But it was uh, it was in a confusing time for Richie, and all he knew that he was in love. And but uh, I have I'm a huge Richie Valens fan because of the movie. You know, I had seen, you know, back years ago, they'd have these greatest hit albums that they would advertise on television. And when I had a chance to learn more about Richie Valance and his story, I was very touched by that. Uh, Number five, a guy that lived a very controversial life, but also, too, a guy that kind of brought that performance piece out from people, and it's Jerry Lee Lewis. A lot of people would uh, pick great balls of fire here. We're going a whole lot of shaking for us. Jerry Lee Lewis was incredibly Controversial. Yeah, married a girl who was thirteen years of age. I believe she was actually his cousin. But uh, you know, he was very much a guy that enjoyed the rock and roll lifestyle. But again, not gonna discuss his personal life or the politics for very long, but I'll tell you, as far as a guy that used the piano, a guy that used the big band, a guy that made people move, Jerry Lewis was incredible number four a band that uh, doesn't get much airplay these days and this was kind of like the last gasp of doo-wop but it's the beach boys and uh, they had a kind of a renaissance a little bit late you know late later in life had the big hit kokomo with uh, the cocktail movie but the beach boys were you know kind of cranking out 45s almost on a monthly basis because they could harmonize and so they brought a different element. So when you look at the 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 origin of the big chorus, you know, because a lot of these guys, like even Chuck, I mean, you know, Chuck, basically what they did is they just kind of amplified the chorus. Same thing with Little Richard. But all of a sudden, you had a group of people that were able to harmonize, and the next thing you know, that leaked into other rock music. so now you you, know, you may have a lead singer that sang the verses, but when you got to the chorus. Everybody kind of began to harmonize, which made a bigger sound. And so the Beach Boys and the Monkeys are probably credited the most with that, but the Beach Boys simply did it better. The Monkeys were kind of a novelty act, even though they had some good tracks. But the Beach Boys were going California girls because I wish they all could be California girls. Uh, Number three, and again, one of the most important men in the history of rock music, it's Jimi Hendrix. And uh, Jimmy was a guy, too, that kind of bridged some socioeconomic and racial barriers in rock music. And I really believe at the time, too, because America was ripe for change. You know, in the Summer of Love in 67, you had Woodstock in 69, and that's when you know, Jimmy plays the national anthem. But that here all of a sudden you have this incredibly cool, laid-back guy basically playing what was considered white music and, and in many ways not playing the same stuff that – you know, Chuck Berig and those guys did. You know, a lot of the blues players, he, he didn't play a lot of that initially. And, of course, he got into, you know, Hey Joe and Red House and things like that, so he was still true to the blues. But, you know, he basically took a uh, right-handed Fender Strat and flipped it over and, and strung it and played a left-handed because that's what he had to do. But um, Jimmy changed soloing in rock music. You know, all of a sudden, we talked about how Chuck Berry had made the guitar, you know, more in the forefront of music. Jimmy took that and put it on steroids. Jimmy took it where, you know, sometimes they would have these long reprises, sometimes live shows, but he'd play three and four minutes, you know, and then then kind of come back. It was kind of like a jam session every time out. But uh, if you don't know much about Jimi Hendrix, other than, you know, Purple Haze and a few others, you need to do a little research, and I've read probably half a dozen books on Jimi Hendrix and uh, his life, and it was very sad at times, and he kind of found himself in music. And uh, he, again, one of those people that changed how we view how the guitar is used in rock music, even today. A lot of things that people do today are based off the principles and the, the things that, that Jimi Hendrix founded. So we're going to go, we're not going to go with Purple Haze I could have gone with a million different songs here, but I decided to go with Fire because I love the percussion on it. Uh, Number two, the Rolling Stones. And this is a band, too, that really began to get better into the next decade. But in the 1960s, they were doing something a little bit different. They were doing something a little different, and uh, they had the, the, the dual lead guitars there, and things were just... You know, Keith Richards, because he had that dirtier tone and stuff, it was a little more rebellious. And, uh, of course, you had Mick Jagger up there, you know, one of the greatest frontmen of all time. But the Rolling Stones kind of picked up the baton a little bit and kind of moved it, moved music more towards, I hate to use the term outcast, but he wasn't riding for middle America. You know, they were riding for those people that were somewhat rebellious and they were riding for people that uh, – You know, were somewhat disenfranchised by society, but number one, and I think we could probably say, in many respects, the band that changed it all is the Beatles. And them, the Stones, Hendrix, everybody kind of had some overlap here. But uh, you know, the Beatles, you know, that they came over as a band that could do a little bit of everything. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you had the dual guitars, you had the harmonization on the chorus, you had multiple people that uh, could sing. You had a good drummer. It was a completely different deal. It wasn't a well-packaged thing. It was just kind of something that happened organically. And when they came to America and they landed in New York, everything changed. And they brought a revolution in music. And for that reason, we're going to go with revolution for the Beatles. And there were a couple other bands that we'll talk about on Wednesday show, some bands that kind of started in the 60s that really began to kind of find traction for themselves in the 1970s, bands like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, and the Yardbirds, and CCR. And there were so many great bands then that uh, really began to break away from traditional rock music and really push more towards metal. And so you began to have some of this darker uh, influence, and so people began to kind of reject it, which made kids like it even more. So so there's, there's your list for today, 50s and 60s, we're going to take a journey through rock music this week i look forward to doing this I thought it was a great idea i couldn't wait to share it with you guys and listen there are a lot of people that enjoyed pat boone and all the doo-wop stuff but uh listen music was ready for a change and uh it happened and america embraced it all right time to get to let's talk a little bit about some uh spring practice stuff brought to you by the folks at campus Bookmart. i was there on saturday i want to thank everybody that came by and said hello we took a lot of pictures and uh, sold some books and a lot of people came in, and we just kind of talked about football and baseball, and everybody was real giddy on Saturday because we'd won on Friday. So, again, thanks so much for coming out and saying hello. If you couldn't make it by, you can still go by and visit them and uh, see Stan Ray and Miss Kathy Brown, the lovely, talented Susie, and feel good about life because they've got everything you need right there, at campus Bookmark I had some guys hit me up on – two different people hit me up and said, hey, Steve, I saw that picture of you wearing that – black mississippi state jersey i want to get it how do they run they run a little bit small so you need to size up a little bit you can go to campusbookmark.net and order today you'll be glad you did and by being a loyal barnyard listener we'll give you a phrase it pays which is bsr and that'll get you free shipping on all orders over 50 bucks Any the order less than 50 dollars incomplete, and of course bsr stands for beautiful steve robertson for, easy for you to remember all right so spring game i got to watch the first half And then I went over to baseball, and I was able to kind of keep an eye on it there too. And so the first thing that I'll tell you, I didn't think that we were especially energetic. And so when I read Mike Leach's comments post-game, I was kind of glad that, that he kind of saw the same thing. And I've talked to a couple of our assistant coaches. They kind of felt the same way. Said, you know, we went out there and we did some good things at times, but our energy level just wasn't quite there. And listen, that's one of the things I thought about too. You know, it wasn't too terribly long ago we got done playing football. And so now we're in spring practice, and we didn't get spring practice last year. And then it's kind of been a little bit of a grind. And so maybe we're at the end of it. I'm not going to make excuses for anybody. But maybe it's time for us to take a bit of a break. And we'll have a clean-up practice on Tuesday. But I did think that uh, we did some good things. I really was impressed with our defensive line. I was really worried about that this year. And every scrimmage that I've been to, the D-line's done well. And you can say, well, Steve, maybe that means the offensive line didn't play well. Well, it's some of that. But you split the lines up. You didn't have your first team unit playing together. So there's going to be some communication, some breakdowns. But some good individual efforts from guys like Randy Charlton, I'm really excited about him. I'm really excited about Jordan Davis. And so we worried a little bit, where would we be able to generate some pass rush? And I'll be honest with you, Randy Charlton and Jordan Davis are quicker twitch than Marquis Spencer and Kobe Jones. Based on what I've seen so far, now we'll see what happens in a game, in a real game, when somebody's trying to hurt you. You know, but based on the early returns, I think the effort level's very good, very, very good. And then Cam continues to be an absolute monster there in the middle. You know, Cam, it's ridiculous. He's absolutely ridiculous. Jevin Banks is a guy that showed some real flashes as well on the D line like what we see from him we know we're going to get aaron brulee Jed johnson had a huge game and a lot of people have been kind of waiting for that right i think some of you get maybe have given up on jet i have not given up on jet i think jet's a guy that's going to compete do a good job for us probably run some at second team mike linebacker but uh you know when you go back and look at that film and saw all his tackles he had you begin to think wait a minute so it just makes you feel even better about your depth at backer when you see Jed step up and do the things that he did Dylan Lawrence, of course, another big game for him, too. And I remember a time, you know, I liked Dylan Lawrence. I thought he might be a wide receiver. And then I talked to Matt Caldwell, and he goes, You know, Stevie's got a defensive mentality. Maybe he grows into a backer. You know, they're going to sign him as a corner. Maybe he turns into a safety. And now you're getting value out of the guy as a safety. You know, that's great, because I know a lot of people out there that kind of gave up and said, oh, you know, the state's throwing away a scholarship. Well, I don't believe that. I didn't believe it then, and I don't believe it now. I believe Matt Caldwell knows an SEC player when he sees one. He was one. He played against them, played with them, practiced with them. And so when he tells me, hey, Steve, this guy could have played on those Jackie Sherrill teams, that's good enough for me. And so Dylan, again, Rounding back into good shape, we feel pretty good about that. Now, on the offensive side of the football, a little bit herky-jerky at times. I thought Will Rogers had some moments. thought some other times he forced the football and other times he held on to the football too long. Part of that, too, is the offensive line play was a little bit spotty, to say the least. I'm kind of happy Jack Abraham is pushing. Quarterback is the most important position on the field. And it should also be a position that continues to get competition added to the room not saying you want to stress the starter but you don't want him getting complacent either i I still believe will rogers is the guy but i think jack abraham did enough here in these last couple scrimmages to say you know what hey i can throw the football around a little bit too and i thought there were times that he was much more in command of the offense at least on the field do a couple of really nice balls to uh how did you query spivey for to say the least and uh, I believe that's correct. of Spivey. But Spivey, I've told he lost 10 pounds. And watch him run around out there. He's definitely trimmed up. He can definitely elevate. He's a red zone weapon. The both of the running backs really played well. Marks and Johnson. Omni Wells played a little bit. But listen, this is the Dylan Johnson and Zerquavius Mark show. And I thought both of those guys played well. And then really ran hard after the catch and on the carry. Excited about both of those guys. Now, the big news, of course, is Jaden Wiley goes down. And, of course, before he's even off the field, we got people on social media saying he's done for the year. And you don't know anything, nothing, not a fact, nothing. Coach hadn't got anything, medical trainers, nobody even had a chance to evaluate him yet. we got people on social media saying he's out for the year. Well, guess what, he's not out for the year. Sprained MCL, going to need four to six weeks of rest and rehab. And you know what, we're right here at the end of spring practice, He's going to have plenty of time to rest and rehab and work on his finals and kind of get this thing together. And then he should be good to go this summer. We'll be careful with him. There's no, there's no need to stress him in the summer. But, uh, yeah, it's a scary moment. People say, well, that's why I hate these spring games. Well, you know, really it's a glorified practice because, I mean, we're still going to practice. It's not like we just kind of drug him out of bed one day and said, hey, let's go play some football. I mean, this is, that was practice 14 or 15. So it could have happened at any point. The good news is, is it doesn't appear to be any tears. It's just a sprain of an MCL. He got rolled up. It was a contact injury, and you kind of prefer that to be the case. It's when they have a non-contact injury you worry about that ACL. So, feel pretty good about how things are going with him. And, of course, you've all seen the picture of him walking out shirtless with his cowboy boots on and his hat on. He and Brad Cumbis are basically the same kid. They spend a lot of their time together. They go hunting together. They go fishing together. He is a country boy all the way through, and then until we get under those lights and you're in the football, and it's a it's a different day and time to say the least. But uh, Jaden Wiley, again, fine, based on the reports that we have, and then we'll see what progresses. And you listen, Mike Leach said in post game, I don't talk about injuries, and as far as you guys are concerned, he's 100% fine. All right, let's talk a little recruiting brought to you by the fine folks at Portico. Brooks Bryan. I know Brooks is excited about his baseball team. And listen, Brooks is a guy that's been on some good teams. Brooks is also a guy that will shoot you straight. He'll tell you, hey, listen, this offensive lineup's got to pick it up a little bit. This guy's got to get it together. I trust Brooks' opinion on baseball, and I trust him when it comes to this new housing development, Portico. If I was looking to move, that's the first phone call I make. Portico is a great place right off of Highway 12. So let's say you're coming into town and you turn off of 82 on a 12 going towards campus. The very first right is Pat Station Road, which takes you to Garrett Road as you cross over Old West Point Road. It's about 100 yards maybe. And then there's Portico. It's 1.1 miles from campus. It's right there. It's right there. And so if you're looking to uh, move to Starville and be close to all the action, Portico is the way to go. There's no doubt about it. Uh, only a couple of houses left in phase one. So if you're looking to move sooner rather than later, you need to make this call today. If you're looking to make a move this summer at some point, you still need to make the call and begin to gather your information. Houses are range in size from 1,300 to 2,000 square feet, two-bedroom, two-bath, four-bedroom, four-bath. There's a walking trail, a pavilion, pretty much everything you need. And it's only going to be a 51-house development. You're not just going to necessarily be on top of each other. So 18 in the first phase, 33 in the second. You guys have done a good job kind of reaching out, uh, getting your information. And uh, The bottom line is this. is Many of you have kind of talked about it among yourselves and said, you know what, I think I'd like to move to Starkville someday. Well, now is that time. It's as simple as that. Why would you wait any longer? I love it here. I'm here until the end. Come be my neighbor. Phone number 601-416-8075. Again, that's 601-416-8075. All right, so we had a really busy week last week with uh, recruiting. Not so much towards the end of the week. You know, we had uh, a commitment Sunday, uh, Monday, Tuesday. Didn't get any over the weekend. There were many, many prospects in town. Basically, all of your signees were here. I think with one exception, I'd have to double-check that. Paul's got a list over on jeanspage.com. You can check it out, double-check my accuracy there. We had several guys here. We had some guys that didn't make it. Shaz Preston had the ACT, uh, so he wasn't able to make it. The same for Cam East. Now, of course, you may have heard NCAA has now said, too, that they're going to kind of forego standardized testing again this year because uh, it's difficult to get the testing done. But I'm told that uh, Chaz Preston's dad said, you know what, we're going to go ahead and do it. We're going to go ahead and do it anyway. So I expect Cam East and Chaz to be back on campus sooner rather than later. Uh, they do have virtual calls regularly. Carter Edwards is a guy we've talked about on the show several times, and uh, he has taken multiple visits. Now he's kind of slowing the process down just a little bit, wants to take some visits, wants to get back to Boulder. Uh, I, I don't, I'll be honest with you, I don't know that State waits on him. Now, like if somebody else comes along of comparable ability that says, hey, I want to commit, I think they take him. I don't think they hold a spot for Carter Edwards. I think they want Carter Edwards. But I don't think they're going to run the risk of losing him and his potential replacement in the class. And so this is a guy, too, that early on was very excited about Mississippi State, and I believe he still is. But I also think, too, that now that the dead period is going to open up here in about six weeks and he's going to be able to take some visits, and he's thinking, you know what, I, I owe it to myself to get out and take some of these trips before I make what is a lifelong decision. And I get that. But that time frame may not necessarily match up Mississippi State. So we'll see how that, that kind of progresses. And there's going to be some business to take care of in these camps, too. There are going to be a lot of these guys that you guys are somewhat familiar with and you think, well, why don't we push? Well, maybe some questions have come up. You know, one of the things that I've heard here as of late, you know, R.J. Moss was listed like 6'4", six, 6'4 four, six, four and, and I understand he measured in at this Under Armour camp, at like, but between Six two and maybe two quarters of an inch, you know, six two and a half. So we'll see. You know, I've heard Janoris Hobson uh, has forty times have been uh, four sixes. We were hoping four fives, low four fives, maybe. And so you know, maybe he needs to come to camp before we do anything. And there's a thing too. There's there's, when there's just one camp out there, it's difficult to kind of know: did we have a bad day? Was there a slow trigger? But when you begin to get more information, you can kind of make a decision. But if that's all you have to go on, you think, you know what, we got to confirm our data before we make a move here. And so I don't know if we see a lot happen right now. I think maybe we've done what we want to do for now. I think Janoris Hobson's a guy that uh, might be a guy you go ahead and take now, but when you're only taking two possibly three receivers in the class, you don't have to rush that. And I don't think he really wants to rush the decision. You get into this Trent Singleton thing. I'm a huge Trent Singleton fan. He was here over the weekend. I think it's just a matter of time before he is a a public commitment for Mississippi State. I really like his game. I like what we're doing here in the secondary. Kamari Rogers was here this weekend along with his father. Uh, That deal's not over, but I'll be honest with you. I have been very, very pessimistic about Mississippi State's chances of signing him, but I know that State is going to continue to recruit him, and we'll see what happens. You know, some people say, you know, Steve, I don't know why you're so – you know, confident he's not going to go to Mississippi State. And I'll just tell you, just what I've heard from multiple people, uh, you know, kind of around the region. It says, you know what, if he stays in state, he's probably going to go to Ole Miss because he sees an opportunity to play there sooner. And when you've got Martin Emerson and Emmanuel Forbes out here, that, that, that kind of makes some sense. But he also has a ton of friends that are going to Mississippi State. He has a ton of friends, too, that are encouraging him to say, hey, let's all go play together. So it's not over. Well, I'm not – the least bit optimistic yet, I will admit to you that, that uh, Kamari Rogers is going to work through the process and the Mississippi State continues to be a serious consideration. How about that? Braden Locke was here this weekend along with his mom and sister. That's quarterback out of Rockwell, Texas. Going to take an official visit to North Carolina. I believe he's going to be there n- n- this coming weekend. I think he's going up for their spring game. And then he'll begin to kind of make a decision. Now, listen, let's be honest. We're going to have to do a great job recruiting a quarterback this year. We have three freshman quarterbacks on the roster. So whoever comes in is kind of understanding, you know, I'm coming in immediately behind three guys that are going to be around for four years. And if a guy redshirts, it's maybe here longer. And so that's something Mike Leach and the staff are going to have to overcome. And that's not saying it's impossible, but I'm just telling you, that's going to be a bit of a chore. Running back recruiting remains a moving target. Not even sure we need one. We already got one committed. Dakota, we'll probably be good there. We'll see how things progress. So, on Wednesday, we'll get back together. We'll recap the ball game. Mississippi State takes on UAB at 630 on Tuesday, and uh, we'll talk a little more recruiting on Wednesday as well. And uh, hopefully by that time, too, maybe we have had some more media opportunities, probably our final media with Mike Leach and them on Tuesday. We'll see. I think that'll probably be a bit of a wrap-up, and that'll be it with us for a while. But I'm excited about the direction of things. And, uh, again, a lot of reports from people that observe practice and say, you know what, we look like we know what we're doing. That's always helpful. All right, let me get a show up for you guys, and I want to hit the hay, and then I'll be back with you soon. So until next time, let's all live our lives in a way we make more friends than enemies, and people can see a difference in the way we live. And you know what? I forgot to tell you something, too. So once again, we had somebody sit behind home plate. Wearing a Stark Villain shirt. I didn't ask them to do it. They just did it on their own. And uh, I love her for it. And I've had all these people hitting me up and saying, Steve, where do we get this shirt? You go to StarkVillains.com and you order it. And then they'll ship it to you. And it's locally made, locally packaged, locally shipped right here from Starkville. It's a Starkville business that handles every bit of that. And then go to AlphaDogsToBook.com and you can get personalized copies of every book out there. Everything that I've got. And uh, we'll give you some updates of some things on Wednesday. But again, until next time, it's all live our lives, and a way we'll make more friends and enemies, and people can see a difference in the way we live.